0: Welcome to season nine of Interdisciplinary where we are discussing information and research as though they are proper nouns and possibly our good friends. In an effort to whet your appetite for our next online symposia this February, Within Reach, the quest for information and research. You can find all the details in the show notes for this episode and please go buy a ticket and that'd be great and I will love you forever. Thank you so much, listener. Uh, this season is sponsored by the generous people at ABMP.
1: ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from Heal Well. Massage therapists and bodyworkers who join ABMP get meaningful resources that make a difference in your career, including free online CE courses, online scheduling included with the ABMP Pocket Suite app and comprehensive liability insurance that provides protection and peace of mind. Can't get enough podcast inspiration and information? Listen for the ABMP podcast with regular guest hosts Ruth Werner and Allison Denny. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com.
0: And now we have a pun. And if we have read this pun before, please tell us, Um, but I hope not. So here here we go. People who can't distinguish between etymology and entomology bug me in ways that I cannot put into words. That's good. Thank you. I stole it from the interwebs. Um, Today I will be joined by my mighty co-host Cal Cates, um, but their superpowers do not preclude fighting with traffic. And so they're going to be semi late today. But we do have a guest. and dear guest, I would like you to introduce yourself because I'm kind of curious as to how you describe yourself.
2: Oh, I have to describe myself, huh? Okay. you do yes. Yeah.
0: Sorry. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, hello, everyone. Uh, in the He universe,, uh, my name is Whitney Lowe, and um been a massage uh, practitioner for um i forget the number counting now something somewhere around 34 years or so something like that anyway it's been a while long enough for me to lose hair get gray and wrinkled um starting to um but uh yeah my passion has been a great deal around um focusing on treating pain and injury problems with massage but more importantly in the educational realm um a great deal more about how to get um better training across the massage therapist in a wide variety of different environments and um if I, we're going to talk a little bit about um, information translation today, and that's a big passion of mine because I've been uh, focused on the educational um, arena for quite a number of years and think this is so absolutely critical for the future of our work is to really focus on how we're training the future of practitioners um, and the current practitioners who are out there doing things who need to up their training as well. So that's a big, big piece, I think, for lots of folks.
0: Thank you. Uh, So my first question that we've been asking everybody so far is how do you feel about information and what does it feel like to you? I feel like everybody's got a sort of abstract image that floats around in their head.
2: Yeah, you know, for me, uh, thinking about that, it, it always kind of brings back some memories of a certain stage in my career in particular. This was like around, let me think of when this was like late 80s or early 90s. Uh, this was in the pre-internet days when you had to go, for example, to a library to get academic literature and 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 see those things. Um, I was very fortunate at that time in my life to be living within a couple miles of Emory University Library, where they have a great medical school there. So there was a fantastic medical school library, and. I used to just go over to the library in my spare time and just, you know, wander in and think like, where am I going today? And one of the things about that, that was so um, inspiring was I just realized, I felt like this was like the Holy grail of, you know, content knowledge and information that was accessible to us that we weren't even beginning to scratch the surface of using in the massage world. And so to me, that was kind of the start of this sort of, passionate desire to help get everybody um, greater access to a lot of the the wonderful information, content, and knowledge that was out there in so many different fields, whether it was, you know, psychology-related things, whether it was biomechanics, kinesiology, pathology, whatever it was that I was kind of looking into, there was just such a wealth of resources and information there, and I found in particular that the more I delved into that type of thing. And the more I learned, the more it shifted and changed my perspective of the way I was working and it changed what I did in the clinic. So, uh, it did definitely had a a very profound impact on, um, what I was doing in working with clients as well.
0: So information for you is, I guess, this visual of like a stacked library with many options. I see like a gigantic
2: pot of gold. Nice. (laughs) Yeah it's uh and it's like um we can you know take pieces of that out and we can pass around those little pieces of gold to others and they can become rich as well so that's probably a good metaphor for it
3: well and i would i wonder if it's like panning for gold right because it's a yeah. big pile right but there's not all of it's gold <laughs> well especially
2: especially now we're recognizing that the, the <laughs> po- that pot gets super super big and it's getting uh you know as maybe it's you know the resource is getting um sort of harder to find the good nuggets in there because the big good nuggets have been picked out so we got a whole bunch of other chaff to wade through now
0: I feel like there's a lot of pyrite in that pile, too. Yes, there is. It looks <laughs> so good. Um,
2: yeah. yeah. Um, oh, but wait a minute. Let me look at this. <laughs> oh, man. No, that's it's not. Not, not that's, what I was looking for at okay, all. Yeah.
0: Um, I Kind of on that note. So one of the things I hear people say, and they say it about sort of education and definitely about massage is that there's nothing new in massage we haven't invented new things really it's just all the same stuff and maybe repackaged um so how do you find new information gold nuggets like what's your process and then how do you evaluate it as useful
2: yeah you know i would say there. There's definitely truth in in that statement. What I would say, I'd like to probably put some qualifications around it saying that there's probably, there's not much new in massage in terms of what you do with your hands to people. There's probably not much that hasn't been done by someone at some point before. And in certainly in recent years, somebody who's taken it and packaged it up into some kind of cool thing and they've given it a name and called it something miraculous. So, yeah the, a lot of that has been done what i think hasn't been done so um expansively is recognizing how a lot of the things that we learn change just the basic things that we do so for example i think for the most part in terms of doing clinical work you know i've worked with people with all kinds of different pain and injury problems and what i've found over time is the more that i do those things and the more time goes on the more i see the actual techniques of what i do are pretty darn simple what makes the difference is knowing how when why and how to alter those things on certain situations and that's what makes a really good clinician that's what's new that's what's constantly evolving is an understanding of how to alter the approaches that we learned it's it's kind of like uh um In school and in our basic training, we learned grammar, and we all learned grammar, and grammar is pretty much the same. It doesn't really change, but what changes is your ability to create artistry with those words and to write uh, great prose and literature that gets better and better over time the more you do things and the more you learn.
0: I would also add to that you learn that some grammar isn't really necessary anymore, and like there are more efficient ways to do something. And you can let some of those old things go.
2: Yeah, I I want to you know put in a a, a plug for uh, Merriam-Webster and those who who are the grammar police that the word ain't is a good word, okay? And you know I grew up in the South and we said that a lot, so <laughs> it's a perfectly good word and it should be in the lexicon. So yeah, as far as the grammar police go.
0: I, I read an entire book called um, Word by Word by a person who works at Merriam Webster and is a lexographer, a mm-hmm. job which sounded amazing until I read this book, and then now I don't want to be one at all. It sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, um, and a now lot see of see how you
2: how you wove that initial pun at the beginning of the episode about etymology yeah. into our our discussion here today. Right, just yeah.
0: bringing it together. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: but they talked a lot about how dictionaries like. The ethical responsibility of a dictionary was part of the yeah. topic of the book, <laughs> and it was fascinating. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so I uh, listened to your news podcast last night, and therefore I have questions that I didn't send you because I only wrote them last night.
2: All right. <laughs> um, I'll take it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I really liked that you said um, was not just that. Maybe how we're doing things isn't necessarily the best way to do things, although we don't need to throw everything out, but that there were two things that we really weren't doing well, and that was complex reasoning and then the process of theory and the theory of massage. And normally when I listen to podcasts, I just get to yell in my room by myself, possibly in my kitchen well Um, cutting up carrots and this time i get to actually ask you to expound on that
2: (laughs) all right you can yell at me here now
0: (laughs) i won't yell i promise
2: yeah no well i you know this is one of those things that's um you know just to to uh, sort of be honest this, this is frustrating as a ce provider in terms of the marketplace and business because um it's a whole lot easier to sell something that you advertise or promote as a grand new magnificent technique that's going to help everybody get better in two magical treatments. You know, that's a whole lot easier to sell than the idea of clinical reasoning and and thought processes um, because it just isn't sexy and and people aren't that interested in it. But in my opinion, that's what makes you a better clinician. Um, That's what's going to make you a much more successful clinician too. Um, And the thing is, you, you know, cl- complex reasoning processes are difficult to teach as a topic. You know, it's not like you can just sort of look something up in a book and say, okay, like, here's here's the clinical reasoning chapter, and, and we're going to teach you how to reason. We're going to teach you how to, to think through things. It's just not that easy. And, and consequently, and this goes back to, you know, my uh, passionate obsession with looking at education. You know, if you look at the the historical patterns and, and methods by which we've done most of our teaching, they go back, you know, centuries and centuries into this, you know, model of lectures, which a, a, a wise sage individual gets up in front of a group of people and espouses wisdom to them, which they're supposed to soak up as a sponge, and then all of a sudden know things. And that's not really the best way to teach reasoning, for example. Um, I mean, I really ran into this. A great deal back in the late 90s in the in the weekend workshop format which is you know two high intensity days of eight hours of class trying to teach people complex clinical reasoning processes and i was just ready to shoot myself in the head because it's just like you think people get it and then you ask them a question which requires them to go through those reasoning processes and apply what you just said in a different context which is what would happen in real life and all of a sudden they're looking at you like deer in the headlights, like, well, you didn't tell us that. You didn't You didn't tell us how to do that. You didn't tell us how to answer that. And so uh, that's when I realized there's got to be another way. There's got to be different ways to do that. And that's what got me really initially interested in exploring online education back in the early 2000s was recognizing the possibility for self-directed um, branching learning strategies where people could make Mistakes in their thought processes, and see like, oh, this isn't really a good thing to do here. I should go do that thing there, and you could have the possibility to do that, and it, and the learning can become a lot more individualized and a lot more personalized, and um, that's just logistically not feasible to do the same way in the classroom. So that's one of the reasons that I think you know online education in particular, is really valuable for teaching some of those more complex clinical reasoning processes. Now, it's not the best way to teach everything. I don't think it's the best way to teach hands-on treatment skills and a lot of things like that. And, you know, there's a great deal of learning that comes with the interactivity of being in a classroom with a lot of other people and having questions asked. Every one of those formats has their, their advantages and disadvantages. But um, in terms of, of that whole process, I would like to see us moving in the direction of of having some more ways to look at clinical reasoning methodologies, regardless of the platform that we're working in, because you can do things like that in the classroom as well. You can certainly do exercises and and engage people's thought processes, but it takes, uh, you know, I'll be honest, it takes a much more skilled instructor to do that than somebody who's just been put in the classroom um, because they know something or they've been in practice for 15 years. So they must be a good teacher, which happens all the time.
0: I think we, um, we as massage therapists, uh, I think we don't often think too much about what it takes to do a certain kind of job, other than massage therapy. And teaching is not massage therapy, even if you are teaching massage therapy.
2: That is correct. Um, <laughs> yes.
0: And reading research is not massage therapy, even mm. if. You are a massage therapist reading about massage therapy. It's just not the same job and the same requirements. Yeah. Um, we don't we don't really come, I guess it's compartmentalizing that sort of function. And you need all of those functions, I think, to be um a good practitioner, even if you're not formally teaching in a school, you are teaching your clients and it makes a difference.
2: Yeah. You know, I've always said that there's really two primary roles that every practitioner um, in the in the clinic treatment room has with the clientele that they're working with. They are a clinician who is working with them, doing physical maneuvers with their hands and interacting with them on a psychosocial basis. And you're an educator because uh, you are going to be asked questions about things that are going on. You're going to have to Um, evaluate some things that are happening with this particular individual and share content with them. And so you are going to engage in educational processes. So um, it really behooves us all to learn some more about education and how to do it well, Uh, I think. Now, I don't think everybody has to really study teaching to that degree of, you know, insane, overzealous uh, exertion that I probably put into it, but it would help to, to know some things about education, I think.
3: I feel like as, one of the challenges, oh, go ahead, Corey.
0: I was going to say as an overzealous person, um, what kind of responsibility do you feel with your content? This is something I'm trying to work into our conference about um, being a science educator and being a massage therapist and the responsibility that that puts on you.
2: I think there's a great deal of responsibility uh, that I hold in that realm because people, uh, you know, for whatever reason, who look up to, you know, the educators or the leaders that they're going to see or to learn things from, um, are looking to those individuals to give them guidance, to be sort of like, a let's say, a guide on the path, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, a cult leader, hopefully, but more like a, a guide on the path that will help say, like, I've kind of been down this road before, I know what's what we got up ahead of us here. Uh, and so there's a responsibility to to be, you um, responsible in the way that we transmit information. And that means we need to keep learning. We need to also be okay with saying, you know, uh, I know I wrote this in a book uh, ten years ago or I put out this video five or six years ago and I said this stuff. But you know what? There's some newer research that's come out that's shown like uh, this isn't really right. So I would like to um, retract that statement and clarify and say, like, this is our better understanding of it right now. And that's hard um because a lot of people get tied to their their models and their images but uh, as certainly as an educator i think we have we have a really important responsibility to to be willing to be wrong and to be willing to change course and correct things um and th- there's a lot of times where i th- i don't know if it's an, an i don't know an insecurity thing with some Individuals, uh, when they get in front of the classroom, like you want to be right. I mean, that's understandable. You are in front of a classroom and you don't want to make mistakes and be wrong about things. But um, we have to be willing to say, like, you know, this isn't really uh, accurate in the way that I thought it was at at one point. And I really think people appreciate that humility and that understanding of recognizing how much you're modeling the way that we change in science when we learn things. That's just how we grow.
0: I taught um, an anatomy class for two semesters and one semester was a morning class and it was great. And then one class was an evening class and that turned out to be a problem because I learned rapidly that I lose my vocabulary at about 8.30 p.m. on the dot. (laughs) It just starts vanishing. Um, So the first class that I taught in this evening class, we got to the very end and we were talking about anterior-posterior and all of these, you know, new lovely anatomy words. And I mixed up anterior and posterior and had no idea. Um, because I was so tired. <laughs> and somebody pointed it out, and I was like, Yes, okay. Anytime you think I'm wrong, please tell me. Just yeah. just say it. And then we will figure it out together. And it's a good chance you're right, especially apparently if it's after 8:30 p.m. So yeah. I think that class sort of like that was day one. So I think it sort of shifted their focus of me as like their bastion of knowledge and more like this person who knows some kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. like sometimes, and that um, sort of changed the tone of the class altogether, which was nice.
2: I think in that, uh, and I always do that at the beginning of every class that I'm with people and say, look, there's some ground rules for our, our class. And one of them is you have to question authority. And what that means is, If I say something that goes against something that you've understood to be true, you have to question me about that. Number one, because I might have said something wrong, like you said, and we want to correct that for everybody else. Number two is that, you know, there might be newer information out that has changed our perspective about things. But this is how you develop clinical reasoning processes is by questioning things, asking about those things. And you have to foster an environment where that's okay. Because a lot of times, you know, people don't like to question an instructor because they feel like it's not okay, and and sometimes that's reinforced with an instructor who gets offended when somebody questions them uh, about things. So, uh, I mean, that's certainly understandable. And I'm not just talking about in massage; this has probably happened their whole life in in classrooms, um, in our traditional educational system. So, um, it really helps to foster that kind of community. Uh, sense at the very beginning of knowing like, hey, we're all in this together and um, part of your job is to ask questions.
3: Yeah, I mean, you're talking about, you know, the the onus on instructors, which I think is absolutely correct. And we think about, you know, that teachers need to know more about teaching. And I feel like I'm willing to be the broken record, but the first thing teachers need to know is themselves because Mm -hmm. so much of how we interact with information comes from our ego and from our sense of challenge and from like our stories about how information serves us or doesn't serve us. And I I feel like as an instructor, my job is to support my students in exploring information, but I think most instructors think their job is to impart information and that like it boils down to the stuff we talk about in our sort of squishier episodes about how so many of the struggles among humankind rest in our hatred of change. Mm -hmm. And that if you give me a piece of information, I want to hold it so tightly so that it can never be different. (laughs) (laughs) And and this cult of personality, I think that you pointed to is, is I don't think unique to massage, Uh, but that, you know, I remember when Tom Myers, you know, gosh, it was probably 10 years ago now or whatever was like, Oh, so hang on. Like, you know, I'm learning new things and maybe some of the stuff that I was sharing and that he took an unnecessary hit, I feel like, because, you know, people were like, oh, you know, I had I idolized Tom Myers. And like Tom Myers didn't ask you to idolize him. Mm-hmm. Like you decided that this person was the the great sage and you froze the information they gave you in time and you didn't let them be a person. Yeah. And I think that that is what happens for so many instructors who sort of become popular and become like the brand of a certain type of massage mm-hmm. that it really is. If I've spent any time in your presence and you've said a thing to me, that thing is etched in stone. And yeah. if you change it, you've betrayed me somehow. Yeah. And yeah, there's some real like interpersonal challenges that I feel like we could do some inner work to make information a little more <laughs> accessible and, and alive.
2: Yeah. I can't remember. I, this is a wonderful quote, and I should I should go back and look up who it was that said it. But I'm, um, you've probably heard it before about something about like it, it's hard to get somebody to understand something when their income depends on them not understanding it, you know. And that yep. has been the thing that has plagued us a lot. Is like you know, if you like in in the CE world, if you build up a system around this modality that you created with this particular narrative about how it works. And then all of a sudden, you know, some science papers come out and say like, this isn't really happening the way that we thought it was. You know, you've built something with a lot of financial um, investment into a model that now, you know, you have to change change course with that. Um, And some people handle that really well. Some people are are very graceful in the way that they do that. Walt Fritz, for example, is somebody who comes to mind as somebody who's really gracefully transitioned from what he was formerly doing teaching myofascial release uh, to evolving an understanding of what we learned more about the neurological system about the fascial system and all those kinds of things and and transitioned his work into a very different um, approach recognizing that oh you know a lot of the stuff that i taught doesn't seem to be held up that strongly with a lot of the research but here's what i do think is happening now that we know more about this and Um, You know, there are some people who've done exceptionally good jobs of, of, you know, navigating those choppy waters sometimes.
3: I
0: think it's terribly sad that those waters are choppy. Um, One of the things I love to talk about is how information is a living thing and not a static thing, although we are mostly taught from day one that it's static and it's in a book and it's on a shelf and that's how it is and that's just the way it's going to be and then you should just go get that book and then you'll know. Yeah. Um, but that's not how it works at all or it's not how it should work. And the fact that people saying information is a dynamic thing and my information has dynamically changed um, and that leads to criticism and loss of income and like just all I can think of is like betrayal (laughs) um, from people, (laughs) (laughs) which is so terribly sad because when you, decide that it's a static thing, then at some point you're going to decide that you've learned it all. And where do you go from there? That's also something that came up in the Thinking Practitioner podcast was um, not choosing to learn what you don't know you don't know. So how do you find new information I I hear people complain that like, I don't need CE's. I've learned everything. Like, what do I need CE's for? I've been in this business for 20 years. There's nothing, nothing for me left. It's just, it's just me, you know, it's just the government deciding that I need to do a thing. And I
2: it kind of goes back to there's that again, let me, I'll mangle this quote because I can't remember exactly what was said, but this was said by um, a very well-known physician educator, something about, uh, you know, Close to two thirds of what he was talking to a group of medical students and said, like close to two thirds or whatever the number was, something like that. Two thirds of what you learn in medical school is going to become irrelevant in 10 years. Problem is, we don't know which, which two thirds that's going to mm-hmm. be. And that's the key, Corey, of what I think you're getting at there too is that people need to recognize that there is a lot that changes from the time that you were in school. And one of the other important reasons for CE is that, you know, Quite honestly, people don't really learn what we think they learn in school for any kind of long-term memory. You know, most of that is short-term memory, the way it's taught and the way school is structured. Most of it is short-term memory to be able to pass the licensure exam. And that is, the again, one of the very important reasons, I think, why continuing education needs to be necessary, because things change and we, we unlearn very fast a lot of the things that we supposedly learned in school.
3: I wonder Corey you can you can decide that this should be edited out cuz I can't stick exactly to a topic but I'm curious how you know we talk a lot at Healwell about how what we've learned from our nursing and social work colleagues and and how we want to incorporate some of those things that have really worked in the long term and and made their education more sustainable at least from the outside and from the folks that we've spoken with and one of those models is supervision. And it's not a thing that we have in massage therapy, you graduate mm-hmm. from massage school, and then ostensibly you go work in a room by yourself with people who don't know anything about massage, except the massages they've received, yeah. <laughs> or what they've seen on TV. And, um, you know, I mean, I think it would, it would be a somewhat heavy lift, because you can't just say, well, if you've been a massage therapist for 10 years, you'd be great in a supervision role. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, when we're talking about supervision for listeners who aren't familiar, we're not actually talking about this person being a supervisor of you, but that this is an experienced practitioner that you have regular scheduled structured check-ins with. And you say like this month, these are the things that are challenging me in my practice, or these are the questions that I have. And I think for massage, it might be a little different because it might actually be some hands-on technique adjustments as well as interpersonal things. But I feel like that would be a way to allow information to stay fresh and to reinforce those things that you sort of learned for the exam. But then, you know, once you got out there, you kind of forgot them. Cause like you said, you're just trying to make a living. Um, yeah. And I, I'm curious how, or if you think, how, or if you think that fits um, into how we might be better at using information um, as practitioners.
2: Yeah. You know, my background was in psychology, so I'm very familiar with the supervision model, and I've always thought that that was a great model for continuing to refine your skill base and your understanding, your application of, of concepts and things like that. I think where we run into the big, big problems is on the logistical scale, because there are so – I don't know actually the number of um, uh, practicing, for example, counselors in in the country, but I have to think – that since we have somewhere over 900 massage schools or something like that currently, that we probably are putting out a lot more massage therapy practitioners than we're putting out counselors each year. Um, And how do we find those skilled individuals to set up a supervision system that really does what it's supposed to be doing? And do we have a graduated degree of skill, uh, you know, uh, recognition and, you know, Cal, you and I got into this on one of our um, podcasts back last year, talking about advanced credentialing things of how do we designate and determine who is at these particular skill levels yeah. to recognize who should be the, uh, doing supervision processes, who might you know best benefit from those kinds of things. And so there's a lot of logistical things that I think keep that from being uh, easily implemented. But I certainly love the idea Of of that, because I think it would be a great uh, learning process. And a continual, I mean, that's what, when you're talking about continuing professional development, that really is the kind of thing where it's gradually done over time with, you know, further refinements, things like that. That's a really good example of continuing professional development processes.
0: Well, speaking of continuing professional development processes, um, you mentioned that you are updating the Massage Therapy Foundation's basic Basics of Research Literacy class. I can read, I promise. Yeah. Um, so I have questions about that. Um, what does that entail? And were there new goals? How much has changed? Did you guys just can it and start over? Or were you like, no, this is it's fine. It just needs tweaking?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'd say somewhere about halfway in the middle of those two things. We didn't can the whole thing completely and start over, but there's a whole lot that needed tweaking For for one thing that first uh, iteration of the course was done back in, uh, I got to scratch my head, but thinking somewhere around 2011, maybe 2011, 2012, um, something like that. Um, uh, This was formerly done by my uh, business partner, Jan Schwartz and I, when we were working with um, education training solutions. And that was one, you know, earlier on in sort of like, some of this was Earlier on in the technological development of some of the uh, e-learning software that was out there, and also certainly earlier on in in my learning curve of learning how to use this stuff well. So, what the course really needed—it's not so much that um, you know a lot of content changed that great deal. Like you know, there's still the um, you know levels of evidence that haven't changed. There's still the the methods of you know what are the best types of. Uh, research studies that are, what are you know good search strategies? Those things haven't changed a lot. What has changed, however, would be things like the PubMed interface has changed dramatically. What you can get out of the search engines has changed. And so this course um, had been originally, and I wanted to continue that process here again, to be something more than just an information dump for people about like, here's, you know, how to read research kind of thing. I wanted it to be an interactive learning experience where, you know, people were given processes and learning activities where they actually have to go into these search engines and find these papers and answer questions that are given to them about this. So this tests their skills and being able to find things and also to to pull information out of those pieces and do something with it. So I'm I'm a big advocate of uh, active and applied learning. Uh, in situations that mimic how you're going to do this in real life, because that's what all the education research tells us is the most effective way to do that. So that's what we're really trying to do is to put a a good bit more um, current uh, polish on the user interface um, and also beef up the current content to be more uh, interactive and give people a really rich learning experience. It's going to be fun and engaging because for a lot of people, I mean, let's face it, the idea of of reading research, isn't that exciting. They're not really that juiced about it. I happen to have that psychopathology that, you know, I love reading medical journals and I think it's fascinating. There aren't that many of us out there that are like that, but, um, I want people to learn how to do this and how to go get stuff if, and when that comes up for them, when all of a sudden a client puts in on their, online health history form the first time they're coming in. Oh, I have myasthenia gravis, by the way. Like, what the hell is that? You know, I want them to be able to go look into this and find something else out about this and, and figure out how to do some things and then make some decisions about how this might impact or affect what I'm doing with my massage treatment. So my goal with this course, and this is something the foundation and I uh, have been talking about is, you know, right now the, this had been uh, proposed primarily as a as a CE course for practicing massage therapists. Um, I want to find some ways to get this into the schools as well because I think it's a, a great um, application of these concepts and ideas that could be really beneficial for a lot of schools as well.
3: Um, you know, one of the things that we're we're often talking about, um, of course, is like sort of the underbelly of research and the. You know, I'm often curious how much your <laughs> I don't even want to say your average practitioner, because I think even your average practitioner doesn't so much care about research in a lot of ways. Like I think we're already talking about a subset of practitioners who will read a paper and look through it. And I think it will be an increasingly important subset as massage therapy continues to move more into um, really being considered as a an intervention for different types of illness and, um, you know, beyond back pain, which certainly is pervasive enough that if that's all we ever did, that would still be a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But that things like, um, you know, Corey introduced me a couple of years ago to this um, paper by a woman named Dorothy Bishop, the four horsemen of irreproducibility. And that like some of the problems in research are really human things that are sort of like bias and, Um, that um, are led by this idea that, you know, publish or perish and that studies that, quote, don't show what they were supposed to show wind up not getting published. And so a lot of money and time gets wasted creating research that has actually already been done. And we could have done differently if we had known that the suggested hypothesis didn't actually bear out or, um, you know, people who um, harking the, you know, hypothesizing after results are known that you sort of like, quote, massage your um, hypothesis to sort of fit what was discovered. And I wonder, like, because I think that many of the massage therapists who become interested in research, hopefully will find themselves being invited to participate in research. And Mm -hmm. I know for myself, like, I'm really glad that we have our team here at Heal Well, and and we work with some really great um, interdisciplinary providers who are kind of policing each other, because on some level, we are interested in massage research because we want to show massage matters. Mm -hmm. And it's a slippery slope to become an advocate when what you're trying to do is research. And that, you know, objective discovery of the truth is much different than (laughs) trying to say, see, I told you.
2: Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, um, this is where, uh, again, back to the whole issue of clinical reasoning, again, I think it is so critically important for people to develop some of those critical analysis skills to be able to look at papers and say yeah but they didn't do this or this wasn't done here this this isn't exactly how we work and and recognize what are some limitations of things because as you noted the whole world of research has has changed a great deal just from you know financial pressures and, and the whole publisher parish thing and you know i had a um a teacher that i was talking to at one point uh, who was doing a lot of work with the universities and had done a lot of biomechanics research he said you, you know how they actually do a lot of the biomechanics research that gets published is some professor has has to go get a paper published in order for his tenure so he walks into the biomechanics lab and looks around and says like well let's see we got a force plate and uh we got a board over here and we got this thing and like why don't we test this? You know, <laughs> because that's the equipment that they have, yep. and so and then that gets published, Uh, and then the professor gets tenure. Yada yada. Like, but the whole point is like, so what? You know, is this really relevant and beneficial uh, information, and is it accurately conveying something that that would be relevant in real life for, you know, either individuals or clinical practitioners or whoever?
0: I think there's also this. Um, sort of leaping to conclusions thing of if something is wrong in a study or isn't perfect in the study then the whole study is just worthless and we're done with it yeah. now mm-hmm. and um that i think that has become a very online discussion sort of um it's not quite trolling, but like, it's close. It's like, I know more than you and that study sucks. And I'm going to tell you why. And you just right. shouldn't read it at all. And you should just throw it away and burn it and shut and, your yeah. dumb mouth <laughs> and <laughs> shut right. your dumb mouth while you're at it. Right. Yeah. And that's and not, any other that's study also, that
2: has those words in it is also crap. Should also know?
0: go. Yeah. yeah. So as far as critical at thinking and complex reasoning goes too. There's all of these like crazy shades of gray that happen in research. And I feel like what most massage therapists get in terms of research introduction is like there's this shiny thing called research and it's Mm -hmm. very shiny and pretty and we need it to do anything anymore and when things are published it's amazing and you should read them and then you should write a case study on your own and it's this very like rose-colored glasses image of what's going on and the truth is just so messy
2: it is Um, messy yeah
0: And but then you know when I tell somebody you should totally read this research paper and it's only five pages of very small typed font very closely together with justified margins good luck with that Um, and also it might not be true partially and also it might be irrelevant in three years and also like there's all these and alsos Mm -hmm. that person's not gonna read it (laughs) yeah they have a life to live I get it yeah it was already a hard sell it was (laughs) yeah. Sell, and then yeah. it just gets worse yeah. and I think all of that stuff is amazing and interesting but I'm a weirdo so
2: yeah well and Corey this gets back to something that we were talking about very early on when you asked me about the you know the importance of of the responsibility that I felt around information is that because I'm a geek and I like reading that kind of stuff I feel like part of my responsibility professionally in this world is to translate that stuff into language concepts and ideas that can be easily grasped, or at least more easily grasped, by the busy working clinician. Um, and I kind of feel like that's part of my job is to help get this stuff into use and and recognition of its value by translating some of these ideas and acting basically like a filter to say like you know here's what we've learned about this and here's where I think you can really use this in clinical practice because if you're not practiced frequently at reading those papers and looking at them and delving into the concepts and the ideas behind them, you don't as easily pick up things like methodological flaws or the ways in which they may be applied to some other concept or idea. Um, and so while we do want to encourage everybody to try to get more research literate, um I also recognize the logistical reality of this is that a lot of people who are busy in the clinic, they don't have time to do this. And what, they want to come home after a busy day of work and, you know, feed the kids and, oh, I think I'm going to sit down and read a research paper now, you know, at 830 at night. I don't think so. Uh, it's not going to happen. So um, this is a partnership. You know, um, I spent a lot of years in clinical practice doing things and um, really have felt that my passion, drive, and interest um, in these later years has been much more around education. And so I feel like that's my uh, responsibility and role is to work in partnership with a, a lot of people who are still doing a lot of, of clinical work and may not have the time or capability to do some of those kinds of things. And together, we can help grow this profession further and and do what is my big goal which is to try to help reduce pain in the world you know so
0: so i have two follow up questions and they're related so the first question is um what sort of method has seemed most useful or effective for translating that research and the follow up is is it tiktok
2: i'll answer i'll answer the second part first no it's not tiktok <laughs> at <laughs> least oh. for me yeah. <laughs> um TikTok is the sound that a clock makes an old clock. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> about the extent of my exposure. We
0: TikTok. are currently wrestling with the TikTok question, Neil, so I'm always curious. Um, I have
2: to, I have to admit there's, you know, certain social media platforms that I just, I can't resonate with. I've had a very, very difficult time connecting with TikTok. So um, that part, it's not TikTok now. Can you ask the first part of your question? Yeah, what
0: what methods uh, that are clearly not TikTok? um, What methods? Wait, I just want
3: to be really clear that Whitney felt super confident saying it's not TikTok, even though he didn't remember what the question was. I just, I love that. So... (laughs) It's just a categorical discounting of That's TikTok. Right. Now, what That's are you exactly
2: asking? what we were saying before. <laughs> no, like, TikTok is not. Anything that has the answer, anything to do with no TikTok what. is just, is just, should be ignored anyway. It's a
0: <laughs> blank space. Exactly. Yeah, we just put it in the blank space. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel the same way about it. Um, what is effective for information translation for you? Well, like what you know, techniques work?
2: We joked about TikTok, but here's the thing you know, social media has become an incredible. Time suck for so many of us and you know it's an attention vortex that just you know draws and then it's you know all these political things that have fanned the flames of of discord and discontent that's all the dark side of what social media has done for us um and you know i know there's there's colleagues and i'll have to admit some of them are probably more, you know, my age and older who say like, I don't get on there. I can't stand. I don't do, I don't do, I don't do social media sorts of things. And, and I, I'm okay with that. I accept that. But I will also say that for myself, the capability to communicate and talk with practitioners all over the world in real time, essentially, um, and talk about a a clinical issue or a, a case study or something like that, and have, differing opinions presented immediately so I can stop and read something and think about it. And and this is not just, you know, in Facebook groups that are trashing things. These are, you know, a lot of times these are very uh, intellectually stimulating conversations that make me think and really make me change the way I'm looking at things. So um, s- social media, in particular, you know, so- certain discussion groups that have a topic that they are, you know, more zeroed in on have been tremendous um, opportunity for, um, me to expand my personal learning network and my uh, capability of understanding and getting stuff out there. I think that has, you know, tremendously accelerated the knowledge translation process, which, you know, again, for people not really familiar with that concept, we're talking about how long does it take for things to get from research or, you know, finding things out or publishing content for that to get it into Uh, ongoing clinical practice on on a regular basis and that has traditionally been a very long time in in certain fields especially our fields where we're not dealing with life-threatening things that need to be known right away it takes a long time to change perspectives and ideas but when you don't have an opportunity to talk to people who are doing different things that's going to take a whole lot longer and so um i really do think there's been tremendous benefit with with a lot of the social channels whatever they happen to be hey and if TikTok is your thing do it on TikTok, you know. <laughs> if TikTok's your game,
0: hey
3: man, more
2: power it, to you. Yeah.
3: Well, and I, th- I, think there's something to be said for, uh, you know, I mean, on some level, I feel like we're, <laughs> we're sort of, caving to the pressure, so to speak. But if that's where people are getting their information, we go to where people are. You know, we, yeah. for a long time, we struggled with how we would connect. Um, we had a hard time connecting with um, physicians who would be interested in what we're doing, and then we found all these doctors on Twitter. who now follow heal well and engage with us and we're like oh i guess doctors have 120 characters worth of time yeah and that's where they are going and so yeah i mean and i think definitely as the i don't know if i'm getting older or the profession is getting younger probably both but i think there are people who are like they'll watch a tiktok video and and learn a thing about fascia or you know whatever if you can make Mm -hmm. it engaging so yeah
2: yeah and you know, there's, there's certain to be, you know, seem to be certain communities of practice that revolve more around certain channels than others. I mean, there's, there still seems to be a pretty strong presence of the massage therapy community and discussions about things on Facebook. You know, that seems to be pretty prevalent. Um, I'm also heavily immersed in the, the learning science and learning and development world and, and, you know, instructional design and all that kind of stuff. The majority of that stuff happens over on LinkedIn, which is kind of interesting. So, um, you Know different channels and different places tend to be you know more oriented towards different uh you know social media platforms and different kinds of ways of doing things, but yeah, yeah. I have um my, my nephew does work for me periodically and, and helps me out with things. And he, he you know, he always joked me like all the young people are on TikTok, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I know they're there, but I'm not. Do I look young to you? That's right. <laughs> Making all the video content, yeah, yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. Yep, TikTok and Instagram—that's where it's happened, man. So, but you know, um, there's there's value in that if because you you need to find ways to speak the language of whoever you're trying to communicate with as much as possible, and so um, you know um i will continue to try to push the envelope of my discomfort and learn some more about these things and find some other ways to connect with with different people who are doing different things i think that's that's crucial for all of us it's not like the old time when you can be the you know the wise sage on the stage in the ivory tower and say if you want to learn the grand master of content of what I have, you have to come to me and, you know, I will bestow upon you my great wisdom sort of thing. Those days are over.
0: As we were putting together this um, conference in February, one of the things that I brought up to everybody I talked to was, please do not be a sage on the stage. Please do anything that you can do to not do that. We have all sorts of resources, with the software that we're using for you, I think somebody's going to use Kahoot like in their presentation and we have polls and we have chat and we have, we have all these ways to interact. So please just don't, don't do it the old way, please. Yeah. Um, and everybody was really excited about it actually. So
2: that was, yeah. pretty you good. know, and this is, like this is a whole completely different subject, but just to, to make this comment this comes up a lot in the learning science world as we're talking about these, all of these new learning strategies and things like that. And, uh, you know, I fought this battle for many, years, especially it's it's not so much a it's not as big a battle as it used to be because you know, COVID rapidly accelerated people's attention, having to be focused on some aspects of online learning. But in the early years, there was all this hoopla about like <clears throat> the the de- de- degenerated quality of education that was going to happen because of online learning. And, uh, you know, like they were always trying to compare it to like, what are the outcomes compared to what was going on in classroom learning in us? And some people frequently bring up the point like, you know, did we ever sit down and actually recognize that the way that we were teaching is the best way to get people to learn? Yeah, we've been doing it for a couple of centuries that way for a few reasons, but it's not really necessarily the best way to learn. And in fact, we know now in many instances that the whole Lecture model that we've based so much of our education on is not the best way to get people to learn things in many instances. So, um, problem is we were all um, taught that way. So, to get us to teach and and learn things different ways is is quite a bit of challenge.
0: I always wonder how much of that is the like I had to go through it, so you have to go through it mentality. I think there's a lot of that.
2: yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of that. Yeah. I hated it. I had to go so through, through hate I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't <laughs> want to take the time to learn how to do something different. And I'll just do it this way. And, you know, to be honest, in, in current massage school education, a lot of this is that, you know, schools can't find people to teach for them. And so they'll get anybody like who can has maybe even a glimmer of, of knowledge or, you know, uh, capability of, of doing a particular subject, matter. how you should go teach this, you know, because you've been in practice for five years and you were really good in anatomy class. You should go teach it. Um, again, not recognizing that that teaching is a, as a specific skill. And just because somebody was either good as a student or has been in practice for a long period of time does not necessarily by any means mean they're going to be a good teacher.
0: Also that you were good as my student specifically. Yeah, Yeah. Uh (laughs) right, right. So sometimes I wonder if we need a a teacher exchange program and send people like across the country and like you're from Kansas and you're going to go to California and we're going to bring that California person over here to Kansas and mix everybody up and see what happens. I don't think that would go over terribly well, but. Probably not, well, there are some I, good in initiatives,
2: theory. you know, that have gotten started with trying to look at, you know, credentials for teachers and, and you know, competencies and skills that a teacher needs to have. And, you know, that's a really good step in that direction. I think we've got a, a quite a good long way to go there and certainly to get people interested in pursuing teacher education programs. We've got a long way to go, but we're making some we're making some steps in the right direction, I think.
0: Maybe that's where the TikTok will come in.
2: Hey, that could be that. Maybe that's the future. <laughs> TikTok for teachers.
0: Well, thank you, Whitney, for coming on our
3: show.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you all.
3: It is. I have a whole pad of questions here that we didn't even get to. So, um, yeah. And since I don't know when we're going to see each other at a conference, Whitney, I might just have to call you and we'll just have one of our do that. marathon we'll one chats. Our long chats. That solve yes. the world. Yeah. Uh, awesome. I Always Thanks. get
2: enthusiastically engaged when we do that. So uh, I'll look Same. forward to it. Yeah. Awesome. All right.
1: Thank you for listening to Interdisciplinary. If you would like to receive CEs for this episode, check the link in the show notes to go and request, take a quiz and request your CEs. Also, check the show notes for your link to our research and information literacy symposium is happening in February, and it's going to be amazing. Please send us an email at podcast at Let us know what you think, what you want to talk about, and what you want to hear about. Thanks for listening. Interdisciplinary is produced by HealWell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at org. That's podcast at Thanks for listening.